Kia ora, I'm Philippa Tolley. Welcome to RNZ's Insight Programme. This week, security, stability and trade in the Asia-Pacific. President Trump did his best to kill the TPP free trade deal when he withdrew from the agreement shortly after taking office. But efforts continue to revive the partnership in some form and trade officials are due to meet again this month to work on how the deal could operate without the United States. With uncertainty lingering in the Asia-Pacific region over the future direction of the Trump administration and China's presence growing, this insight explores whether a regional trade deal is being seen by many as vital to ensuring stability. Such is the power of the market that some of the most sought-after tuna caught off the east coast of the United States is shipped to Japan to be auctioned here at the iconic Tsukiji market in Tokyo. It's then sent back to American restaurants with a stamp of being sold at the biggest and arguably one of the most prestigious fish markets in the world. But trade matters don't always go swimmingly, and President Donald Trump quickly threw the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the planned regional free trade deal between 12 Pacific Rim partners, back into the water. The TPP is a horrible deal. It is a deal that is going to lead to nothing but trouble. It's a deal that was designed for China to come in, as they always do, through the back door and totally take advantage of everyone. His campaign cry of America first rocked the boat and left traditional partners unsure of where things lie, with many appearing to face new negotiations. I'd rather make individual deals with individual countries. We will do much better. We lose a fortune on trade. That rhetoric also appeared to put Washington at odds with many in Asia. China is killing us. Japan is killing us. Vietnam, new one, killing us. Every single country, practically, that we do business is killing us. There have been some signals of reassurance from the Trump administration over its relationship with China and the rest of the region. But with America possibly becoming more isolationist, the growing influence from China and real security concerns, such as North Korea, do trade deals take on a new light? I travelled to Hawaii, Tokyo and Beijing on a Jefferson Study Fellowship to explore the drive to secure regional trade agreements and ask whether fears of instability are refocusing attention on the benefits of nations working together. At this time of international uncertainty, it's more important than ever for outward-looking trading countries like New Zealand and Japan, who stated their principles clearly, uh, to demonstrate our commitment to international trade uh, and to regional economic integration. The Prime Minister, Bill English, was keen to reinforce the similarity between the positions of Japan and New Zealand during talks just over a month ago with Japan's Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe, as the two nations have been at the front of efforts to revive the Trans-Pacific trade deal. Mr English also highlighted how both nations were calling for North Korea to comply with the United Nations Security Council and abandon its weapons programme, and for international law to be followed in the South China Sea, a reference to a tribunal finding against China's claims in the area. 
Given its geographical positioning and historical ties, Japan seems to be carefully managing its relationship with the new US administration and also maintaining a certain wariness over China. At a briefing I attended in Tokyo, the Deputy Director General for Public Diplomacy at Japan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Masato Otaka, raised the presence of Chinese vessels in waters Japan considers its territory in the East China Sea near the Senkaku Islands. The islands are controlled by Japan but also claimed by China and Taiwan. Masato Otaka says the Chinese presence is seen as an attempt to reinforce their claim. In the last six or seven months or so, we're seeing more vessels uh, that were actually uh, transformed uh, from uh, Navy vessels into Coast Guard vessels, uh, which means that they are uh, highly armed, heavily armed as well. And we see these vessels uh, uh, in the vicinity these days. Uh, We've always seen some military vessels in the background, and we still do, but we're seeing more or these uh, heavily armed vessels in the front line as well. At another talk, a special adviser to Shinzo Abe's cabinet, Tomohiko Taniguchi, spoke of Japan's many challenges and worries over safety. Japan is surrounded by three nuclear powers, and uh, Japan's dependency on the seafaring trade uh, is going to be the same in 20, 30 years down the road. So what? What's happening in both China seas matters in that context. Uh, what uh, the Japanese government is doing in a pretty much bipartisan fashion uh, is to getting itself closer ever to other like-minded seafaring democratic nations, uh, including, uh, of course, the United States, uh, but more like Australia, New Zealand, India, Singapore, uh, and so on and so forth. And the past conflict between the two nations appears close to the surface in Beijing. This military commemoration of the 70th anniversary of the defeat of the Japanese forces comes at the start of a Chinese promotional DVD on the military today. During a briefing, a Ministry of Defence spokesman, Senior Colonel Yang Yujin, looked back at recent history and the conflict with Japan during World War II to explain China's position in the region today. He said history showed that backward nations got beaten up. Bitter lessons from history told the Chinese people that a strong military is an irreplaceable guarantee for national security. Without a strong national defence, a nation can never ensure its own security. To get rid of of the destiny of being beat up, we must always return the sense of crisis and try hard for building a prosperous country and a strong military. China has 9.6 million square kilometers of land territory, bordering 14 countries on land and six countries across the sea. China is one of the countries in the world having the largest number of neighboring countries and the longest land border. Moreover, China has more than 6,500 islands larger than 500 square meters. China is also the only big country that is still not unified. We shoulder an enormous task in maintaining national sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity.
While urging both nations to learn from the past and value peace, he contrasted what he saw as China's efforts to seek prosperity through peaceful development with what he described as Japan's past militaristic efforts to develop through invasion and seizing the fortunes of others. Both Japan and China have been working at their relationship with Washington. From across the Pacific, the United States has maintained strong ties with Asia, although a sense the focus had drifted to the Middle East prompted President Obama to acknowledge changes in this burgeoning region with his so-called pivot to Asia. Stephen Olson is a research fellow at the Hong Kong-based Heinrich Foundation that promotes sustainable global trade. He's clear the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal was formulated as part of a wider plan by the Obama administration to create stability and connect the region. It was also intended as a not-so-subtle signal to China uh, that the United States would not be lightly ceding its influence uh, in the region. So important are these economic alliances that they're also mentioned as part of America's defence strategy. Now just months into a new administration and amid a flurry of visits to Washington by international leaders including Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and China's President Xi Jinping, has much changed in perceptions of stability and relations in the region. I'm in the part of the Chinese capital that's home to embassies and diplomats from around the world. Here I spoke to New Zealand's ambassador to China, John McKinnon, not long after he attended a large international forum on Beijing's Belt and Road proposal. That initiative aims to create a trade, financial and culture network stretching from East Asia to Europe, with China pledging billions of dollars to build railways, ports, airports and more in countries along the old Silk Road. Despite the ambitious development plans proposed by China and the sometimes aggressive rhetoric from Donald Trump, John McKinnon says on the ground, the balance between the two megapowers remains pretty much as it has been. There is a China which is getting richer and growing more influential. There's the United States which is part of the region too. And everybody in this region is consciously aware of those two realities. So yes, there is obviously a different set of personalities now in play, but I don't think we should uh, ignore the fact that, structurally speaking, that situation hasn't changed as much as maybe it might appear from the surface. But even with day-to-day diplomacy apparently continuing largely as before, the stability aspect of multi-nation trade agreements appears to have gained greater attention. New Zealand's Trade Minister Todd McClay sees economic and strategic benefits going hand-in-hand. Well, countries that trade well with each other and get on and have a lot of economic interest and integration are good friends. And if you look over a period of time, you know, it's not the only reason, but often that's why there has, you know, regions have been destabilised, when you don't have that balance around opportunity and growth. And when you have instability and, you know, through a lack of security, that it harms economies. You can't trade. You know, if if our ships can't get up and down from New Zealand for some reason, then our economy shrinks. And so I just think that whilst my job is to focus purely on the trade aspect and and negotiate high-quality agreements so New Zealanders have advantage everywhere in the world that they do, you know, just offering them opportunity, that there is more to the importance of trade than just what we buy and sell. Despite the uncertainty over American trade policy, the early announcement that President Trump will take part in three summits in Asia in November has been seen as a positive sign he wants to engage.
He's due to be at the summit between the United States and the Association of East Asia Nations and the East Asia Summit in the Philippines, as well as the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC Summit, in Vietnam. The Vice President of the Asia Society Policy Institute in Washington, Wendy Cutler, was also a negotiator for the U.S. as the Trans-Pacific Partnership was thrashed out. She's optimistic the administration will remain engaged in the region, but also feels it's pushed nations away. By withdrawing from TPP, we've kind of sent a message to other countries that they should look elsewhere, that they shouldn't rely on the United States, and that perhaps the United States is not a credible trading partner. And um, that's what we're seeing now as countries look to conclude RCEP, as they look to conclude TPP without the United States, and they look to conclude bilateral or other um, or agreements with other groupings of countries, once again, without the United States. But the number one imperative for Crawford Faulkner, a trade professor at Lincoln University and a former Deputy Secretary for Trade, is for nations to focus on the bigger picture of the region holding hands and working together. He doesn't like the idea of what the world would look like if countries don't hammer out a viable Pacific Partnership Agreement. It was never an end in itself. It was a stepping stone to building something bigger and stronger beyond. And if you don't take the first step, you don't actually get there. Um, And I I really think that that picture um, was lost in the process. And ironically, now that uh, it's not going forward, I think you begin to see what the alternative, rather more chaotic uh, options are for the Asia-Pacific region. And I think they're much less attractive. And I think maybe people will begin to see that but the political choices that are made here are rather different than, than, than worrying about whether it's you know 1.8% versus 1.6% or 2.3 versus 2.2. They are there, but, you know, hey, you know, you've got to look at the wood as well as the trees. He says in the Asia-Pacific region, the big challenge is to do everything possible to ensure the two megapowers, China and the US, get along. And they need other people to help them. And that, that's the beauty of arrangements like TPP and other stepping stone arrangements is it helps to bring them together. They, they need that kind of help because, you know, sometimes, you know, you need somebody to do the intro, uh, somebody to bring them to the table uh, because they don't have, you know, their vanity doesn't let them sit down together uh, at their own invitation. So that's what I think is, is the real challenge. And that has strategic political and economic consequences. They're not in separate boxes. There's much discussion over what direction Washington will take over Asia, and the executive director of the New Zealand-China Council, Stephen Jacoby, says all options continue to be worked on, including the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, which involves all of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, plus six trading allies, including China and India. I think there's a very big vacuum that's been created in uh, the trade policy space and that vacuum will need to be occupied by someone at some point. I don't think, by the way, it's China just at the moment anyway. We're not seeing China pick up the leadership except in a kind of a, in a, in a more general sort of um, cheerleading sort of thing. Uh, I think we really are in a time of kind of quiet diplomacy. We need to let a whole lot of things percolate along a bit. We need to keep exploring TPP minus one. We obviously got to start a new dialogue with the United States about what might, could or possibly be possible. We've got to keep working on RCEP, raising the agenda and the ambition. And we've got to develop those other things in Europe as well.
But how easy is it to get a new version of the regional agreement in place, minus the United States, TPP-1 or TPP-11, as it's often called? And will President Trump ever change his mind about a regional deal, or will he stick to his guns with his promised one-on-one or bilateral trade agreements? A Washington-based specialist in Asia-Pacific international relations, Satu Lumay, who's the director of the East-West Centre there, says the Trump administration came into office with a deep mistrust of the multilateral approach, throwing about comments such as NATO is obsolete and the EU is a joke, and with virtually no mention of regional organisations such as APEC. He believes many of those positions have now shifted, but not when it comes to a regional trade deal. However, Satulumay believes there are reasons why the remaining 11 partners might well be interested in keeping the deal alive. It's in order to say that since TPP is there, we've made all the agreements and all the compromises and all the uh, issues we can do under TPP. So don't come to us asking for a bilateral agreement that makes us give, makes us give up more. So I think it's a strategic defense by 11 TPP. I have no illusions about what they're up to. But I also think they still think that it's possible to dock on. And the history of American trade policy is, is such. It's not very linear, right? Every president, every president for the last 25 years has opposed the free trade agreement that he eventually supported passing. That's true with NAFTA. That's true with the Korea-U.S. Free Trade Agreement. That's true with some of the smaller agreements like Colombia and Panama. It's true with TPP. President Obama didn't start entering negotiations on TPP till well into his term, right, into his eight years. And that's because trade is not a you know, really positive sell. Former TPP negotiator for the United States, Wendy Cutler, still advocates for that multi-nation approach. She also believes that any return to the agreement by the US would have to be based on a rejigged deal with a Trump stamp on it. That might mean provisions would be added in or removed, and perhaps other countries might be worked into the mix. But the efforts already underway to push for a new version of the trade deal emphasised to Wendy Cutler that this was not just a US trade deal, that it was an agreement of like-minded countries that wanted to negotiate higher standards and new rules for the trading system. On a practical footing, she says all the political capital already invested is also motivating them to move forward, but it will be a tough task. One of the reasons that I think the TPP-11 exercise is going to be difficult is that for it to work, in my view, basically you really can't make any substantive changes. You would have to change the entry into force provisions because those provisions require the United States to be part of TPP. But if countries start chipping away, basically saying, well, I don't like that provision, let's get rid of this, and another one says, well, I don't like that provision then you can see this agreement, which was the the result of over five years of negotiation, was very carefully balanced. It's almost like a um, someone used the analogy of a thread in a sweater. You know, once you pull that thread by adding, by asking to, to get rid of certain provisions or change them, this, you know, it, it, the agreement would quickly unravel. Getting all or the majority of those involved in the original deal to agree to a reduced form is still far from settled.
For Vietnam, the main benefit of the Pacific deal was access to the US, and commentators have suggested it may be more interested in moving on a bilateral agreement with Washington than being part of the original deal minus one. In the last month, Vietnam's Prime Minister Nguyen Xuân Phuc became the first Southeast Asian leader to visit President Trump, and multi-billion dollar deals were signed, including for goods the U.S. Commerce Department says would support more than 20,000 American jobs. The two leaders agreed to continue to strengthen defence and trade ties and reiterated the importance of freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, which has been the focus of territorial disputes involving China. So if some of those in the TPP-11 group are cool on the idea, Hong Kong-based research fellow Stephen Olson says another grouping may be viable. Come on in. TPP-5. And this would be the five countries that at this point appear to be most enthusiastic about moving forward. That's Japan, Japan, New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, and Brunei. Move forward with the TPP and then hope to bring the other countries in at some point. He says one factor that might persuade Washington to look again at a regional deal would be if the U.S. finds it difficult in its bilateral negotiations to get terms as favourable as it had under the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Practically, many experts are also expressing doubt over how many bilateral agreements the U.S. Congress would have the appetite or willingness to pass. Lincoln University's trade professor Crawford Faulkner doesn't think a new agreement without the US would alleviate the objections raised in New Zealand and elsewhere to the regional deal. The biggest worries were over aspects such as provisions to increase monopolies on pharmaceuticals and the impact that would have on the cost of medicine and the accessibly named investor-state dispute settlement provisions. More simply put, this is a system which would allow individual companies to sue countries for alleged discriminatory practices. Many saw this as taking away the right of government to make its own decisions in the best interests of its people. Crawford Faulkner thinks that opposition will persist. Perhaps their intensity of opposition is diminished slightly by the fact the US isn't part of it, but on the other hand they will know that uh, there's a good chance that some way down the line that the US would be part of it. Having said that, uh, the interesting thing is that one of the things that the US allegedly had the most problem with in TPP was that it considered that those provisions were too useless and didn't go far enough, and particularly on the intellectual property side. So that's a judgment that, that people will have to make. But he recommends focusing on the final achievement rather than disruptions along the way, saying it's easy to overreact to individual events rather than remain constructive. So, you know, when the US said that it wanted out of TPP and uh, when the Chinese sort of react to any trade restrictive measures that the United States takes, as it were, you know, the temptation always is to sort of say, oh, well, bugger you, um, we're going to go our own way. Um, I think that's what you have to avoid. You have to sort of recognise that you're playing a longer game and that there are bigger stakes here um, and and you have to always keep uh, a constructive engagement in the exercise. Stephen Jacoby of the New Zealand-China Council says this country has always been agile in its negotiations and will continue to balance close trade and security relationships with the US, strong economic ties with China while flying the flag for the Trans-Pacific Partnership minus one. This is the genius of New Zealand's foreign policy, is never to have to choose 
between great partners, having our cake and eating it too, all of that. I mean, Can we continue to get away with it? Well, it's going to be harder, clearly. It's going to be harder, and I think we've got to be very nimble and flexible in the way we conduct our, our foreign policy. Uh, we have to be, and there's a need on the part of the New Zealand community to maintain an independent foreign policy, to stick up for our values around the world. I mean, it is clear that we have enormous amounts of... Uh, um, collateral invested in the um, you know the Western world, the Western alliance. I don't think anybody is advocating we do something different uh, there, even while we build stronger links up into uh, into China and the rest of Asia. I just think it means we've got to be incredibly flexible, and we've got to be uh, engaged in many different uh, dialogues and debates. While New Zealand works on having good relations with all, the Trade Minister, Todd McClay, is realistic about New Zealand's place in the queue for any trade deal with Washington. I'd like to see it launched during that period of time. I'm not sure it's likely to be concluded, although I would say to the US, as I have to the EU and others, if you can't do a high-quality trade agreement with New Zealand quickly, you can't do one with anybody. But we, we need to be aware of our relative size compared to theirs. We're four and a half million people, uh, the things that we traditionally have produced in abundance, we want to sell many countries of the world protect, and you know a lot of that is the dairy industry, I suppose. With an election only months away, Stephen Jacoby, who's also the chief executive of the New Zealand International Business Forum, says the nation faces an interesting situation where parties do not necessarily share the same vision over trade they may have had in the past. I think the debate we're going to have in New Zealand in this election is going to be about an open economy and greater degrees of a closed economy, depending on which party you want to look at on the other side, uh, on the non-government side at the moment, I mean. Um, So I I think that's a bit of an uncertainty, uh, and business will want to be looking for ways in which the major parties can commit to more bipartisanship around the trade policy agenda, because it does matter uh, for longer-term positioning. The Trade Minister, Tom McClay, is quite upbeat about the chances of making progress on the so-called TPP-11 before the end of the year. We have said we want an option to put before our leaders when they meet in November, which will be at Vietnam on the side of the APEC. Uh, now, that doesn't mean in November we say, this is exactly what's happening, here we are, we're ready to sign, it happens tomorrow. We still have time ahead of us, but we've set a six-month time frame, which some have said is ambitious, But if we're not renegotiating, it's not ambitious. It actually can be done. And the reason for that, the benefits are sitting there that are in an agreement that is still high quality, is that it's just absolutely not something that any New Zealand government could turn their back on. While experts try to work out exactly what the intentions of the Trump administration are over trade and ties with the Asia-Pacific region, others focus on the latest threat to security, be it North Korea missile tests or manoeuvring over islands in the South and East China Sea. But throughout the region, buying and selling continues, and many are hoping trade agreements may prove one way to improve stability. I'm Philip Atolli, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on this programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insightrnz. 
I travelled to Hawaii, Tokyo, Beijing and Manila with journalists from 11 other countries on a Jefferson Fellowship awarded by the East-West Centre. My participation was funded by the Asia New Zealand Foundation. I wrote and presented that programme. It was produced by Teresa Cowie with technical production by Phil Bench. Why not podcast other insight programmes? You can head to iTunes or your Android provider and subscribe, rate, and you could even give us a review. Or you could visit the Insight webpage at radionz.co.nz. Thanks for listening. Thank you.